We spoke a few months ago about how to deal with a boss who's a jerk, but what do you do when there's bullies in the organization or maybe the organization itself is bullying you? Today, a unique perspective from someone who has been a trailblazer and lessons for all of us in tough leadership situations. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 172. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. This is a weekly show to help leaders improve their communication, coaching, strategy, productivity, and personal mastery. And I'm so glad that you are back with me today, because today an important conversation that is one that is something I think many leaders run into, but isn't something we always talk about a lot in organizations and certainly not in leadership training courses, which is how do we navigate difficult situations in leadership and how do we navigate situations when we're dealing with bullies and particularly when the bullies are the people that are leading us. And I have someone with me today who I think is just uniquely qualified to speak on this, not only with her success and her career, but through her experience of where she led and at the time that she's led in her career. And that person is Jill Morgenthaler. Jill is a retired colonel in the United States Army and uh, was one of the early women officers to join the U.S. Army when the Army first started uh, really uh, welcoming women. I, I say welcoming a little tongue-in-cheek, which we'll talk about a little bit more, uh, but welcoming women into the military. And she is the author of the book, The Courage to Take Command, Leadership Lessons from a Military Trailblazer. And Colonel, I don't know, welcoming may be a little bit of a strong word, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it was um, Uncle Sam wanted me, but back then, not necessarily the men. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I really uh, was struck in reading some of the things you've written, and I love the stories, and I hope we'll get into a few of them here. But I, I w- it was interesting how you were just so excited to have this opportunity to join when the military made this decision. And then it was your father who kind of, um, you spoke about in your TED Talk, that really kind of uh, did a little bit of a reality check before you went off to boot camp, didn't he? Yes, he did. He realized as he watched me being very excited and packing up for leadership boot camp that um, I was clueless, that I had no idea what was facing me. And he being a Marine officer, he knew exactly what was going to face me. So he prepared me by you know, warning me that they were coming after me, that just my presence and other women meant we were going to have this weak military. It was going to be a sissy military. Communism would win. So the intent at boot camp would, from a lot of men would be to break us down, make us cry, and get us to quit. And uh, I remember looking at him like, I want them. What do I do? And he was like, you've got talents. You're the daughter of a Marine and we'll just fake it till you make it. And it's like, okay. And boy, was I glad he prepared me because there was 83 of us women in that experimental class of women training with men, 500 male cadets on a military post of 50,000 men. And the men went after us with a vengeance. You know, we were... 
we were we were called every name in the book, but I just remember hanging in there, just kind of reminding myself, like my dad said, you know, I've got talents. I'm the daughter of a Marine, and you know, nobody breaks me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. You know, I I can I can only imagine. Um, and then this was back in the '70s, right? When you uh, right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think about some of the challenges we still have today in our military as far as um, diversity and gender, and I can only imagine back then what that environment was like that that summer when you went off to boot camp. And you know, I, I I'm really struck in some of your writing and speaking of how you you continually tie back, and we've talked to this on the show before to the vision, the vision you had, and a vision I think that your dad had a had a role in uh, in helping you to form as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I joined the Army, of course, it was to see the world, but it really was to save lives and bring freedoms. I'm definitely my father's daughter. And I just kept that up, you know, in my head as I went through these struggles. Hey, there's a reason for this. You know, it's my mission in life to save lives and bring freedoms. And and that I would just hang on to that some days when I really just wanted to run away. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, it. I, I, one of the uh, stories that you tell in your book um, is how we tell, tell a number of stories around how to kind of deal with the bullies that you've run into, and and, and the military was certainly such at, at the time that you were entering that there were a lot of people who were ready and willing to bully you and others like you who were trailblazers. And, you know, I'm interested in how you handled some of these situations. And uh, I was struck online about this article that I read that you wrote about a situation you uh, you handled in Egypt when you were uh, when you were assigned there with a general who was part of the Egyptian military. And I'm wondering if you could frame that for us on on what the you know, what happened, what was the setup for that and then how you approached that situation. Yeah, I was actually, um, by this point, I was a lieutenant colonel in the Army and, you know, rank things. Life was getting easier as a woman in the military. I'd proven myself. I'd commanded. Um, and and in, in the military, people do respect the rank. So uh, when my unit and I were sent off to Egypt to go work for a two-star Egyptian, I, I just kept thinking, how cool is this? And then when I met him, I realized it wasn't cool at all, because as soon as he met me, I was the battalion commander, he just said, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Morgenthaler, I'm not working with you. You are a woman. I will deal with Major Healy, who was my second in command. And I looked at him and I thought, well, I'm not going to overcome thousands of years of culture and tradition here, but how do I hold on to my power how do I still give him the respect he has earned as a general? And so, you know, I said, Whoa, yes, sir. But after he left, I turned to Major Healy and I told him, no decision about the unit could be made without my approval because I was determined the U.S. Army sent me for a reason. They had the faith in me to command. I wasn't going to give up my leadership or my power. And I remember Major Healy being pretty surprised because I'm one of those leaders who do believe in empowering. I don't believe in micromanaging. But I I was determined to hold on to the power and the command. And um, it worked out great because the general is on the top of the fifth floor of this building and we were on the bottom and there were no elevators and when the uh, his staff would get on the telephone we couldn't understand their English so when he wanted something from the unit he would send a private down five flights who would request Major Healy 
Major Healy would go up for five flights and the general would ask, you know, I'd like the unit to do the following. Major Healy would say, sir, let me get Colonel Morgenthaler's approval. And the Major Healy would have to come down five flights, meet with me. I would give my approval. And then Major Healy would have to go back up five flights to go, yes, sir, uh, the colonel says we can do this. And the one thing that's common, I'd say, across all cultures is a general officer does not like to be kept waiting. (laughs) (laughs) So this went on for some time. Um, Yes, Major Healy probably had the best calves in the army. Um, (laughs) And then one day the private came down, pointed at me. And as I went running up those stairs, I thought, oh, my gosh, I taught an old dog a new trick. And um, I knew whatever request he had for the unit, he was getting an instantaneous yes. You know, we were going to have, you know, reward immediately. And so he made the request, Colonel Morgenthal, I want your unit to do the following. Yes, sir. Mm. And after that, we got along fine. (laughs) Um, That's awesome. But I I think part of it, it was just boiling down to... um, respect and you know saving face for him and saving face for me so what was that win-win and i managed to come up with it well that's what i love about this story when i read it is that you you found this this middle zone between like you said allowing him to save face but at the same time you didn't back down you found a way to still work within the system and what he said but also to influence in a way that allowed him to make that decision. Uh, how did you in the moment know what to do uh, to handle that situation when you first met him and had that interaction with Major Healy? Like, what is it that led you to make that decision and set it up that way? Well, I think one of the things, Dave, is I actually have a master in international policy studies. So, um, and having uh, having served in Korea and Thailand, you know, in very male-oriented environments where they'd never seen a woman, a military person, let alone a military officer, I think somehow that those experiences added up to me understanding I'm not changing the culture, but I think I can adjust the behavior. Mm. So how do I do that where we both win? Oh, interesting, interesting. You know, that's it's such an it's such a profound lesson I think for a lot of leaders because uh, a lot of people in our community are in many ways trailblazers, not necessarily in the same way you were, but they are in a situation where they may be being bullied, they may be uh, different in some way, either who they are or their belief system or the perspective that they're bringing to the organization. And it's finding that balance is so important in order to be an effective leader. Yeah. And um, there are, I mean, I, I spoke in front of several hundred college students and I asked them, how many of you have already worked for a bad leader? Oh my gosh, 85% of the room had raised their hand. And so that could be the bully. It could be the indecisive, but it's like, I think everybody, anyone who's held a job, eventually you're going to come across this. And of course we've seen, you know, the bullying in the schools. Um, It's, it's, we see the bullying in the, on the, on the, in the media. And it's, you know, it's, it's having to stand up to it. That's necessary. Well, and speaking of standing up to it, I, you have another story that you tell about um, a situation where you and another at the time, I think you were a major, you and another major were um, 
in this in this a similar position, and you outranked him by date uh, tenure of service. Um, and he was really not happy about that. Um, and I get, and it sounds like, and maybe you can share the details. It, it made a scene in front of a whole group of people, and and it was, it was really interesting how you handled that. It was very different than the Egypt situation. Yeah, very different response. Yeah, we were both peers. We were um, we were at Command and General Staff College together, which is you know where you're learning to be strategic leaders. And each one of us were put in charge of a team simply by date of rank. We were some of the senior majors. And so we each had our own teams, but then they combined the teams. And because I had been promoted to major before him, I was the team leader. And in front of the two teams, as we're, you know, I'm hoping to gel us. In front of the two teams, he he gets, he's he was a very tall man, you know, like 6'4", 6'5", 230 pounds. You know, I'm 5'7". And so he gets really close, right in my face with his body. And he starts yelling at me, you know, why are you in charge? Why am I not? And and I have learned through the years when someone tries to, tries to use their body, you got to say, stop. So I just said, stop, wait a minute. And then I turned around and I grabbed a chair and I stood on it. And now I was taller than him. And I kind of did the same thing back to him. I just went, I outrank you. Get over it. <laughs> and then I said, excuse me. And I got off the chair, put it away and said, now, can we all work together? And everybody just kind of sighed a relief. He actually I was chagrined, but he and I got along fine. We actually ended up becoming friends by the end of the summer. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I sometimes I think, I don't know that sometimes bullies know they're bullies. And that's why that saying stop is really important. And there are some people, if you don't push back or st- stand firm, they will roll over you. You know, it's funny you say that because one of the things I know you've talked about too is, yeah, you know, when when you've written about how to handle bullies is also to make sure that you don't become or we don't become the bully ourselves in situations. And that's something that sometimes can be uh, a challenge for some of us. Yeah. Um, yesterday, I spoke to about 300 women in high tech. And one woman asked, you know, how, you know, when I'm aggressive, that's not accepted. And and I was explaining to her that aggression, that is not respect. Aggression is actually your own insecurities coming out where you're, you're going to take away something from someone while being assertive is you are respecting both their their needs, but you're also respecting why you're the one in the job in the position. And so, for some people, it, they don't they have maybe been raised where aggression was accepted as leadership. And I'm making little quote marks here, mm-hmm. but it's assertiveness because that that's saying I'm the one here with the responsibility for a reason, but I respect everything you bring to the team. And so when I see someone being overly aggressive, I want to reach and say, you don't have to prove yourself. You're good enough as it is. Now just assert yourself. Mm. You know, I, in reading through your stories and in watching your TED Talk, I was, I was really struck by how you have handled so many different kinds of situations in so many different ways. And in some cases, you've handled things very strategically and other times it was very 
very assertive. And other times there was almost an, an element of stubbornness <laughs> um, in a good way. And, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I just am, one of the things I'm wondering about is, how did you learn how to do that? Like, how did you learn how to just be so flexible and handle so many types of unbelievable things that were happening to you in your career in the military as a, as a, as a, as a female trailblazer? I, I think part of it helped to have my father in the military. So growing up on Marine Corps bases, and he was an officer, without realizing I was a sponge, I, I could understand when people started to show disrespect, he stopped it immediately. And so when I would find men, a lot of times a man would say, with all due respect, and right then I knew he was going to show disrespect. Mm. It was like that. That was a catchphrase for, um, "I'm I'm now going to you know be out of line." And I would actually say when they go, "With all due respect," I go, "Halt!" Is what you're going to say respectful of my rank and position? And often they would stop and go, "No." I said, "Then you cannot say it," mm. because um, you know that was that was my biggest challenge is. I have, I have, you, you earn respect and I needed to earn it, but uh, there were many who did not want to give it to me solely because I was a woman and they weren't willing to look at everything I'd been doing or accomplishing. Um, and I think part of it was just having been a, a Marine child and moving all my life, I have learned to go into a situation and kind of hang back and watch what, who's in power? Who isn't? Who's got the ear of the boss? Who can influence? And so by those observations, I, I learned how to judge people and what, what people respond best to. Some people, they need a lot of praise. And it's like, okay, note to self. This one needs a lot of praise and being told a lot that they're doing well. Note to self, this person just needs room. They just want to have the initiative. So it's it's getting to know the individual and what do they respond best to, to do their best job. Well, I know you're a big believer in knowing your people and taking the time to really, like you said, I mean, it, it's, it's so interesting. When you think of military officers, I think a lot of times the stereotype is someone who's very assertive, uh, maybe even aggressive sometimes, very confident, and yet... Oftentimes, you will hear from people who are really leading effectively of, no, that first step is to step back and to watch and to listen and to see what it is that people need. And so it's really, uh, it really strikes me that that is part of your methodology as well. It is. I, I, and I love, um, I love sitting down and talking to people and asking them, how do you, be, how do you want to be awarded? Because one thing in the Army, we couldn't award with money. So how else do you want training? Do you want a day off? Do you want this? And people would let me know, and that would actually go into my notes, because I wanted to make sure they were getting what they wanted out of it. And therefore, they were then more likely to turn around and watch out for me. And it's such a great question to ask, isn't it? Like, how yeah, do you yeah. how do you want to be recognized? And I, you know, it's interesting because you you will sometimes run in, and I've run into people in my career where will say, "Well, I don't really know what's going to motivate this person." And you know, one of the first questions I always ask is, "Well, have you asked them?" And yes. and <laughs> so it's it, it seems like one of those things that it's like so obvious that sometimes we don't think to do that in a leadership position. Um, but when we do, it's it's interesting how often people will will really tell us because they want us to know. Yeah. 
I was looking over, you know, some of the models of leadership that you've taught. And one of the things that you speak about is the importance of emulating leaders who have been, uh, have been real, have been real role models for you. And I know you've spoken about your dad and how important your dad was in the leadership style you developed. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, what is, when you think of other leaders you've worked with, what are the things that you've most learned that have been helpful to you as guides in being able to influence people effectively in your military career? Well, I was very fortunate. When I was a brand new second lieutenant in military intelligence, I was sent over to Korea to a small military intelligence unit. Um, There were only two officers, Captain Armstrong and myself, and then a a group of great men. And Captain Armstrong, uh, he taught me a lesson that was really just has stayed with me all my life. Um, I had come back to our, our, our little Quonset hut, our office space, late one night. I must have forgotten something. I walked in, and there was Captain Armstrong waxing the floor with one of those big waxing machines. And he's just gliding. And in my snooty little 22-year-old way, I looked at him and said, Sir, that's why we have privates. And he just kind of snapped his head up, stood up real tall and said, Lieutenant, I never ask anyone to do something I'm not willing to do. And I thought right then, oh my gosh, this is a leadership lesson. (laughs) You know, and, and at that, from that point on, I, and he said, you might not be as good as they are, but get in there and try it and do it. And so many years later that paid off, uh, I was, uh, reaching out to get a brigade command and I was at us, I was at my unit. And it, a battalion, and it was firing. We had we'd brought in guys to help us fire our weapons. Pretty miserable day out. It was for the whole division, and so I went out, laid in the mud next to my guys, and I didn't realize it, but I was the only senior officer out there. And unbeknownst to me, a general officer came out and he spotted that little silver oak leaf on me, and he remembered it. And when it came time for brigade com- command, he called me in and said. You're a little junior, but I'm giving it to you because you're right out there with your soldiers. Mm. And it's like, wow, did that lesson from Captain Armstrong pay off the whole time as a leader? And then I was rewarded for it, too. You know, I'm uh, I'm so grateful for you and so many of the other women leaders in the military who have been trailblazers and have really helped our armed forces to become stronger, more confident, more diverse and 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 as we all know still many many more many much more work to be done in that area in the coming years but you have very much led in that way and you're still leading and now you have uh, really migrated your work into speaking on leadership and helping organizations to do this effectively and I love your energy and um, you are someone that uh, you know really brings a lot of energy to the to the work you do with people. And uh, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about you know just what you're talking about and and how you're working with organizations now. Well, you know, when I retired at 30 years, <laughs> they're like, "Get out of here!" Um, I was like, "Okay, what's next?" And I realized, okay, maybe I'm not going to save lives and bring freedom. So why don't I better lives? Mm. And I have found such a hunger for leadership training. You know, I've been fortunate. I've been trained to be a leader since the day I was 18 and walked into the ROTC building at Penn State. Uh, Harvard uh, Harvard Business did a review and they said the average leader 
becomes a leader around the age of 31 in corporate America, does not receive training till about 40, 41. So you're talking a nine-year gap. Isn't that and the I, truth? Yeah. Yes. And I thought, well, let me help fill in the gap. Let me show the how-tos. Let people not have to learn the hard way because, Dave, a lot of my lessons were the hard way. I definitely stumbled. I luckily had great you know, soldiers and mentors looking after me. But it's like if I can make someone's life easier and give them the how-to, don't just say, oh, go do this. But I recommend you do this, and here are some hows. This is the w- some ways you can try and do it. And um, I'm loving it. I'm speaking to corporations. I just had 120 women from Africa, Central Asia, and Latin America. I had 120 women all going, Hua! and it was just <laughs> cool. <laughs> it's just like, wow, this is where I want to be. Awesome. Um, awesome. So it's, yeah, it's fantastic. Colonel Jill Morgenthaler is the author of the book, The Courage to Take Command, Leadership Lessons from a Military Trailblazer. Jill, thanks so much for your leadership and your energy. I'm uh, so glad I got to chat with you today. Oh, thank you, Dave. Every leadership position is different, and certainly being a military officer is very different from leading in other capacities, and yet there's so many great leadership lessons here for us, and there's three that really stick out to me from this conversation with Jill. Uh, One of them is both in her experience and her dad's experience. When people start to show disrespect, stop that immediately. And I think that there's a lot of wisdom there on when someone's going down the path that is going to really be unhelpful for the relationship and disrespectful to you, them, other parties especially, that that's the kind of thing if we can step in as a leader and stop and call attention to immediately really sets the standard for how we are treated. And more importantly than just how we're treated as a leader we set the standard for how people communicate and handle each other in the organization. And that's key because if we set that standard in a leadership role, it really does influence how other people handle things. Um, I also like her wisdom on hanging back and watching when moving into a new situation. And I, I think that that's another thing that is a struggle for many of us. There's the expectation many times if you jump into a new role or you get a new position to immediately start to add value and we've heard this a few times on different uh, on different shows now from different leaders. I'm thinking back to astronaut Chris Hatfield, who was on the show a few months ago, and how he had learned this lesson of stepping back and listening before jumping in and trying to add value. So I think that's a key lesson. And then finally, asking people how they want to be rewarded. And I know we've mentioned that on the show before, but I, I think that's the kind of thing that even if we've heard before, really putting that into practice. And if you can do that, and have that conversation with people and understand what it is, how it is they want to be recognized and rewarded and make a note of that, like Jill suggested. That's the kind of thing that uh, when we refer back to, it really does inform how we take the time to recognize others. And it goes way beyond just financial rewards. In fact, a lot of the best recognition isn't necessarily the financial. It is other things that we can do as a leader in addition to that that will support us having paid attention and recognized in the organization, really valuing people. So I hope you check out Jill's book too and utilize it, for especially those of you who are in positions as a trailblazer in whatever capacity you're leading. 
that that's a great resource for you too. And of course, the show notes are always available at coachingforleaders.com slash 172. A reminder that the next Q&A show is coming up in episode 174. And the topic for that show is resources for leaders. So if you're looking for ideas, uh, particularly going into the new year on training programs, uh, school, graduate degrees, books, software, membership, services, websites, podcasts, uh, all of those things are fair game and many more. Send in your question now. The best way to do that is coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And finally, a thank you to those of you who joined the weekly leadership guide this week. And I am publishing that every Wednesday, and it includes my thoughts and recommendations on the best articles, podcasts, videos, books that will support your leadership development between shows. It also always has the show notes and the links for everything we mentioned in the Monday shows. So definitely check that out if you haven't already at coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And thank you to Ken Deemer, Christopher Foss, and thank you, Christopher, for the kind note. If uh, if you hear this before, I have a chance to write you back. Uh, Surin Krupnik, Adam Hagerman, Jody Beggs, Maria Pagura, Robin Kay, and Olaf Eckfeldt. Thank you so much to all of you for joining the weekly leadership guide. And if you'd like to get that as well, go to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe, and you'll also get immediate access to download the guide I have for 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others, including two books that I rely on weekly. And one of those is Dale Carnegie's book, how to Win Friends and Influence People. And I talk through in that guide how I utilize it, why I think it's a great resource. And speaking of Dale Carnegie as a resource, the Carnegie Coach podcast is going great. Thank you to all of you who have listened as well. That airs Tuesday through Friday. So if you're looking for more wisdom during the week, particularly around Dale Carnegie's teachings, check that out online at Carnegie Coach. And it's a short form show, just five to 10 minutes a day but it'll help remind you of what's most important. And that is being able to take care of people well and strengthen your people skills so you can lead more effectively. Have a great week. And I look forward to talking with you next week. Take care.